Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, this week is my co-host, John Tidy. John, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. And also, Mike Hillier, who is also a mastering engineer and writes for Music Tech. And what else, Mike? Uh, yeah, I also write for Sound News Magazine, and I do other audio bits and bobs. <laughs> Excellent. And don't we all? Absolutely. We yeah. We, yeah. And video bits and bobs and all the rest of it. And the reason I've asked Mike on as a guest this week is to talk about gear, specifically whether it's better to have one really great piece of gear that you know absolutely inside out, or to have lots of different pieces of gear so that you have the perfect solution for whatever problem may come your way. And if you know anything about me and this show, uh, then you'll know that there's not going to be a hard and fast answer to this question. And there is really no answer to that question. But I think we can have an interesting conversation about it along the way. So let me just start by asking you guys, John, do you are you, are you a gearhead? Do you love having racks full of gear? Are you always kind of thinking about the next... I know you're always thinking about the next toy because you're still thinking about getting a new camera for your video blog, right? Yeah, I I mean I like I like the process. I like researching gear. I like buying gear and trying it out and you know and, and making something and I find that buying gear usually leads to writing new music and things like that for a little while at least. I don't really aspire to have like a big rack of gear because I know that with the limited amount of gear I have now, I'm using like one channel of it to record voiceover 90% of the time. So it's not getting that much use right now. But I mean, that that might change if I have a dedicated facility for recording, mixing, and mastering and things like that. But while I'm in my house, I don't really care that much. I got my Space Echo. I got a, a preamp that I like. And you know, that's those are my favorite things right now. Cool. Fair enough. And, and Mike, how about you? Um, well, I'm quite fortunate because I get uh, through Music Tech Magazine I get to try out a lot of gear. So, you know, the new whatever the new compressor is from whoever, it will no doubt get sent to my address and I get to play with it for about a month and then send it back. So, and, and in terms of plugins, I generally get to keep them. So I, I get to play with a lot of different gear. But yeah, my racks aren't, you know, they aren't covered with silly amounts of gear. I've got a couple of bits and bobs that I consider to be important or that I've just not allowed to go back because it was too much fun. <laughs> right. And I think fun could be uh, a topic that comes up fairly regularly in this discussion. Because, okay, so I will... I've seen this kind of from both sides because... In fact, I've seen it for two or three different sides. So I, when I was trained as a mastering engineer, um, I think I've said this before, digital was the new hot thing. So to have DDD, meaning recorded, mixed, and mastered digitally on your CD, remember those, um, was kind of what everybody aspired to. So the mastering facility that I was working at was, I was going to say it was 100% digital. It wasn't actually 100% digital because some of the first gear that I used was analog. But one of the things that it offered that was a, a unique selling point at the time was all digital mastering. And the, I mean, the gear back then, the digital gear in particular, was so expensive 
that they didn't have that much of it. Um, I mean, remember when we first got the uh, TC Electronic M5000, which was the the kind of the precursor to the finalizer that lots of people <laughs> blame for the loudness war. Um, and there was one in Studio One, and we would, you know, if somebody wanted to use multiband compression on this this thing, then you you would take the stuff into that studio, particularly to be able to run it through for whatever reason. And I mean, that's another point is when I started out, we weren't using compression as a matter of course on every master. Uh, I was trained to begin with just to master using EQ and limiting. Um, and of course, you could, it's still possible to get great results that way if you've got good enough mixes to start with. So, but then over the years, things branched out, you know, more gear was bought. Uh, the studio that I was in ended up having an O2R96, uh, the Yamaha Digital Desk, which, you know, had plenty of channels and plenty of processing built in. There was other gear in other studios that uh, people would use. So I, having access to all of that was obviously great fun. And I mean, I like using a really nicely built piece of hardware just as much as anybody else. Um, but then I left the company and my plan had been to, to dry hire their studios while I worked as a freelancer. And unfortunately, the company closed. So I didn't have access to that facility anymore. And that kind of led to where I am now, where I have this kind of workable setup um, in my home studio and I can go out and use other studios if there's something out there that I need or if I need more space for clients or or whatever and I'm very happy with the current setup being minimalist if you like I almost enjoy the challenge I think this is the thing at no point in all of those 20 years have I ever felt that I was not able to get the result that I wanted because I lacked a particular piece of gear okay I've immediately thought of an exception um there was a point when I was working at SRT, we had all of the Cedar uh, restoration tools that John and I talked about in an earlier episode. We could put a link to that in the show notes on themasteringshow.com if anybody wants to check it out. That stuff was super expensive um, and really high end. Uh, obviously, when I left, I didn't have access to any of that. So there was a while before I decided to stump up the cash for Isotope RX. Um, and at that point, you know, I really missed the ability to remove clicks and distortion and all that kind of stuff. I found workarounds, but I mean, how about you guys? It, Mike, is there a particular piece of hardware or I guess even a particular plugin? I mean, this doesn't have to be particularly about hardware. It's just about the tools that we use. Is there something that you have that you just couldn't get by without? Yeah, my UAD card. Okay, I think that's kind of cheating because that has, how many plugins <laughs> have you got running on it? Um, I've, I've got all of them. <laughs> okay, so that's a lot. No, but okay, so well, in terms of the actual plugins I need, that, that, that has, you know, it has the EQ and it has the compressor and it has the limiter that I use most commonly. Um, I'm fortunate if I get all of the UAD plugins from Universal Audio, um, but there are only a handful, maybe five or six that I actually use all the time and most of them I, they get opened once or twice I play with them a little bit I see what it's like I do a review for the magazine and now they get kind of left and I, I go back to the ones that I know really well with a couple of exceptions where I go oh this is actually much better than something else I've been using so out I mean out of those they, presumably there's an EQ there's a compressor there's a limiter those kind yeah. of things but I mean is there any one of those that you genuinely think Oh, this particular EQ does something that no other EQ 
is it a preference or is it actually a necessity where you think, no, this, there's something about this is, is unique? I'd say it's definitely a preference more than a, a completely unique thing. I mean, you, you can do it with just stock plugins if you have to. It's just, it's much faster to work with a plugin that kind of gets you there in fewer clicks, that kind of thing. Um, it's, you know, the, the classic advantage of using a really simple compressor like an LA-2A over the stock, or, or even a really nice, well-specced digital compressor, is that there's only two knobs. So you get to the sound you want really quickly. Mm-hmm. If that's unless, the right sound. Unless that, <laughs> unless that compressor, do, yeah. But if it doesn't do that sound, then it's the wrong compressor for the job. Yeah. See, this is interesting because this is, this is kind of the exact opposite of my position on it. But So, John, same question to you. I mean, so the Space Echo. Does that do something that no other effects unit does? Not really, but I kind of love it because <laughs> it's it's so degraded. The, like when I got it, the tape was stuck together, and I had to I had to fix that, and the rollers didn't move. I had to fix that, and I still haven't replaced the tape, so it it still has like random pitch drops as it goes over the splice, or it gets over a sticky spot, and you know the the motor has power fluctuations and it's randomly slows down and it doesn't keep tempo quite right. But it's so much harder to get a plug-in to do that. But that's not a mastering thing. So I could do all my mastering just with Ozone, probably version four, if I had to, plus RX. With those two, I could do every job. Yeah. I, 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 this is the thing. I, every so often I think I've found something that is completely irreplaceable. Um, and it's, I mean, it's very common to hear, uh, people, you know, evangelizing in interviews and online and all the rest of it, talking about, you know, this piece of gear that they couldn't work without or, you know, X, Y, Z. And there have been times when I've thought that, and I almost always prove myself wrong. So a recent example, Uh you know, I mean, I've said before, my favorite multiband compressor is the one that's comes with the TC electronic M6000 system 6000. Although actually, I don't have one of those. I've got the PowerCore version that runs on the like the the UAD Firewire accelerator um, units, and that's my kind of go to. That's my benchmark, if you like. But recently, I was experimenting with the FabFilter Pro MB because um, so many people were talking about it and saying how much they liked it. I was finding, yeah, I could get pretty good results. And then I found one song where I just couldn't get what I wanted, and. In the end, I just, oh, forget it. Went back to the TC and got what I wanted really quickly, just as Mike was describing. But then, I don't know why, I, I kind of went back to it and played around some more. And after about half an hour of fiddling around, I did manage to find, I think if I reduced the release time, maybe it was, on the the Pro MB, I got a lot closer to what I had with the TC Electronic. And that's my pet theory, right, is, is this whole convenience thing. When you know something well enough, you can use it so fast that you can get to where you want to go so quickly and so easily. Everything else, the, the learning curve is too steep. Why would you spend another hour figuring out how to tweak the parameters on piece of hardware X or plug in Y when you can just get the result you want really quickly with the thing that you know? Um, do you guys you agree with that? So isn't it kind of pointless to use a, a different piece of software to match what you used to have um, and using it in kind of the wrong way to get the particular sound. Let's say we choose a 1176 because it has a limited set of controls and has a particular sound, but you don't use that to have complete control. So you don't use an 1176 if you want 
uh, to match, let's say, the Pro MB, right? It, it's not the same tool. I, I think a lot of time is wasted matching tools to be a, a certain way, but you're not using them to their full extent because of your matching graphs. You're, you're, it's too intellectual, is what you're saying. And it's, yeah, it, you're not using it the way that it's designed to. Uh, yes, you get to the result, but it's taking you 10 times longer because you're using the wrong tool. And, and you're also not getting the best out of the new tool because you're not letting it, you know, the, the, the features on that new tool that are different, you're not, you're not using them because you're trying to match the other one. So if that's uh -huh. got a bunch, if the new tool is, you know, shines at one particular aspect and you're trying to get it to do something else, you're not letting it shine in its own way. So, okay, so this is really interesting. This is where I start getting... So, so I mean, the first thing to say is that the reason that I was trying to match the TC was partly just out of academic curiosity, partly because the TC was a benchmark for me. You know, I like I literally used it for 15 years. So I know that I can achieve the results that I want. And but at the same time, I would like to replace it because it's slow in terms of uh, non real time bouncing, exporting stuff. It only runs at about two times real time, um, whereas modern plugins running native can go much faster. It's flaky. The drivers, you now have to use beta drivers that are not fully compatible with the latest operating systems. So uh, it crashes every so often. It has limited DSP. There's a whole lot of practical reasons why I would like to basically take it out of my workflow. But the kind of the minimum requirement for me is, can I get results that are as good as I could get with that older tool? with the new tool first. If the answer to that is yes, then I can use the new tool to hopefully improve on them going forwards. So it's not so much that I want to match it for its own sake, it's just that that has been the benchmark and I need to know that I can improve on it. And I think almost the more interesting thing about what you just said, Mike, is for me, you're focusing too much on the tool. I don't care whether I'm using it to its fullest extent or whether I'm using all the best features or using it in the best way, what I care about is do I get the end result that sounds the way that I want in my head? And I see the two different ways of, it's just two different ways of working, right? I listen to a song, want to achieve something in terms of the dynamic management. So I reach for a compressor that I know I can use to, to get that result. And usually that's a really flexible digital compressor where maybe I have to dial in a few more parameters to get the result that I want, but I get there. Whereas you're suggesting you kind of listen to it and go, oh, that's a job for the LA-2A, or that's a job for an 1176, or that's a job for a Fairchild, which is an equally valid way of working. But I mean, it requires you have those three different tools. But for me, I, get, I would get distracted by all of those different options. I just want to use a tool that I know inside out to get exactly the results I want. I feel the same way about EQ. You know, you could use a Pultec style EQ to do that thing where you can boost and cut at the same frequency to get, uh, you know, the the kind of the classic EQ shell with the low shelf that then takes a, a little bit of a dip above the crossover point and then evens out again. I would prefer to go in with maybe two or three different bands of a digital EQ and fine tune those perfectly than to just use the the more limited controls on the you know, the classic EQ. I mean, leaving aside any possible kind of nice coloration that a classic piece of EQ might give you, 
um, which I feel has less place in mastering probably than in recording and mixing anyway. What's your reaction to that? I think you're, the mistake you're, that I see that you're making is that you're seeing uh, an individual compressor with a lot of options, something like your uh, TC System 5000, and confusing that the massive amount of options as, as being simplicity, whereas I think the exact opposite, I see, oh, I've got three different compressors that I could be using here. I've got uh, an 1176, I would never use in mastering, but not, not here or there, uh, an, an LA2A, a Fairchild, a, an SSL. And I know instinctively, because I've used the tools quite a lot, this is a job for a Fairchild, and now I've got fewer options. So we've actually both got the same number of options. It's just that I've narrowed mine down by limiting it later on, and you've narrowed it down by using various knobs and things on your single thing. It's not, n- neither one nor the other is correct, but I don't think you can call one more complex than the other or vice versa. Now, that's probably fair because it's also true that I limit my own options using the very flexible tools that I have. So it's not like I tweak all of the different parameters. And actually, I, I also dislike processes that are too complicated. You know, um, there's a bit of research somewhere that shows that people can only, if you get beyond some, something like five to seven options um, and people's eyes just glaze over and they won't choose anything. <laughs> and I definitely feel that happens to me with the gear that I'm using. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it's just the way that you used to work. I, mean, I think we said when we were chatting the other day that you were saying that you used to approach things more in the way that I'm describing. Is that right? And it's almost having the option to all of these different pieces of gear that's kind of opened your eyes to the possibilities. I used to try when I was comparing different compressors. I used to try and make them sound alike in order to say, you know, I've got this one and it sounds I've, it can do this sound exactly the same as as this earlier compressor that I used to use. Um, and now I'm going to compare the two to see which one I prefer. And I, I decided after a while that that was fruitless. I was getting nowhere because I would be trying to decide which of two things that I've deliberately tried to make sound the same I preferred. And inevitably, I would always prefer the one I set first because it's the one that I already know and it's the one that I've set the thing for something it does really well. Whereas now what I do is I let the, the tool guide me a little bit into its best range. And I end up, I often, not always, but I often end up with quite different results. And I then just have to decide, do I like the results that that thing gives me or not? But it's not, I'm not trying to make it sound the same as the old tool I'm comparing it to. That way I get to learn the tool better and what it's capable of and what sounds it's going to get me when I'm mastering and I'm listening and I think in my head, I know what sound I need to get from this. I need a very mid-present sound. I'm going to instantly reach for the tool that I know is going to give me that mid-present sound. Mike, I uh, had a similar realization um, with that as well. The, um, yeah, just using the tools for what they're best at. Like there's so many different, we got to go back to 1176s or or LA2As, because there's every company has one of them. And they all yeah. sound, they all can sound the same, but they all sound different in their own way. And a couple different features, but generally they're trying to do the exact same thing 
And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which one you have because you probably already have three of them. So it's just a matter of, of workflow or, you know, I, for that style of plugin, I often go for the T-Rex ones because they have left and right controls, um, like unlinked controls plus MS controls on every plugin, whereas the Waves ones don't. So for me, that's more flexible. See, that's an interesting point because that has more to do with the, uh, the functionality in terms of the practicalities of it, doesn't it? Than the, any kind of particular magic. Because here's the thing, I find it's a fascinating paradox because I completely understand what you're saying, Mike, about it makes no sense to try and match two things that are different to be the same as each other and then compare them. On the other hand, as anybody who's listened to this show will know, I, you know, one of the fundamental points that I work from is if you've got to get things as similar as possible, particularly in terms of loudness, when you compare them in order to do a fair comparison. So for example, if I did one master, I mean, again, we wouldn't use an 1176 for mastering, but let's, let's say I set it up as part of a mix. And then I went back and started again with an LA-2A or a Fairchild to set something up. I would have the same goal in mind in my head when I set out with both of them, but they would probably end up sounding somewhat different. Because the tools react differently. Because the tools react differently. But then if you don't get them as close to each other, you can't really compare the two. So it is, it's just a kind of, it's, it's an interesting little paradox. You can, you can compare the results and you can decide which one you prefer. Even if they're different, you can still have a preference. Yes, you can. And you can use perception to level match. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's... But at the end of the day, who has time to set up three to five different effects chains for a, a single song and an A-B compare them level matched? If you kind of just want to go with your first instinct, you don't. no one has the time to mix the song five times in a row before moving on to the next ten songs on the album. That's why I think it's important to not have too many tools to start off with. Have, have a limited selection because you can't possibly learn all of the tools very, really well. And I think it's really important to learn what you have so that you're not, when you come up to that vocal in that song that you're mixing and you've got five available compressors, you instinctively know which to choose. So you don't go, oh, is this an 1176 or a Fairchild one? I'll compare them both quickly. You just go, oh, this vocal is going to really suit the aggressive sound of an 1176. I'm going to throw that on it. And off you go. Or use all three. <laughs> in a chain, yeah, why not? See, it, it, it is fascinating because it reminds me of two things. One is recently I did a workshop at, at a studio for recordproduction.com. Five or six different producers there and everybody had brought their favourite set of mics. So when it came time to choose the vocal mic, I think from memory there was a Neumann, might have been a U47, there was a C4 and uh, there was a Sherps mic, um, you know, a small diaphragm uh, with switchable capsules. So all three mics were put up. We got the singer to sing and then we were listening. And it was fascinating hearing people's opinions because people who had preconceptions about, oh, the C4 is going to be right for this, preferred the C4. And people who always liked Neumann's liked the U47. I liked the Sherps because I felt it had better top end. But my overriding impression was these are three stellar microphones. Any one of them would have got a great result. We would just need to apply a little bit of EQ to some of them, you know, maybe tame the top end a little bit from the Sherps and maybe 
the other two would need a little bit more top end to bring out the air and the vocal. Um, the other thing it reminds me of is back when I was a trainee, when I was learning to use my first digital audio workstation, because back in the day I used to master from DAT tape to DAT tape. Um, so yeah, when the first computers started coming around, that was a real innovation. But um, one of the things that I loved doing was a live album, where especially if it came from a bunch of different concerts. So you were having to do edits to create what appeared to be a seamless show from performances that maybe are in different venues and uh, you know recorded by different engineers, possibly over a load of different years. And it was playing around with the crossfades. And I was using a piece of software called Sadie, uh, which is a, used to be the industry standard mastering software. And one of the things it was superb at was tweaking crossfades. It had one of the best stereo editing interfaces you could ask for. And I would spend, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever, getting what I thought was the perfect transition between two of these songs, you know, going from a stadium with 20,000 people to a club with a few hundred and trying to make it sound convincing as though they belonged in the same space. Uh, and then I would call Nick through and say, what do you think of this? And he would kind of look at what I'm like, oh, well, and he'd spend about 10 or 15 minutes coming up with what he thought was the best. The point of all of this is that nine times out of 10, the results that we achieved with different length crossfades, different shapes of crossfades, probably different spacing of the songs and timings and all the rest of it, most people would not have noticed a difference. We both were convinced that the way that we were doing it was the best and the most effective at any one time, but actually it was all good, which comes back to my feeling that providing you have a goal in mind, providing you know where you need to go, it doesn't matter what tool you use to get there. And this is where I agree with absolutely with what you guys are saying. It's then a case of what gets you there fastest. Um, and that could be choosing a particular microphone, choosing a particular compressor or EQ, or it could just be dialing in the right settings and moving on to something more interesting instead. And I think it's, it's a good thing that there is no right answer to this. I mean, the whole idea for this episode actually came from Mike and I talking about a new set of videos that I'm putting together, which is going to be called Home Mastering Compression. Um, I finally got down to actually recording the videos after about over a year of thinking about it. So hopefully it will be out there in the world and you guys can check it out uh, before too long. But I had kind of gone down a, a bit of a, a blind alley with it. I wanted to discuss the differences between single and multiband compression and why you might use them. And that made me think that I should talk about the fact that some single band compressors have a sidechain filter that enables you to make them less responsive to the bass, um, which obviously has an influence to the way that they react and the way that they sound. And I was asking on Facebook for some suggestions of uh, good examples of this, good implementations of this. And Mike stepped up and started making some suggestions for me. And somewhere in the conversation, I realized that actually I didn't want to go into that much detail in the videos. You know, the, the video series are going to be uh, described the way that I use compression when I'm mastering, um, which is not the only way to do it. You know, the, it's the way that I do it. And I think I've, I've realized that it, the way that I use compression is structured enough that if I offer it to people as a framework, they will be able to use that as a basis themselves as a way of getting started 
with the the subject and kind of branch out from there to figure out how they want to use compression in mastering. And so for me to go into listing all the different kinds of types of compressor and how they work and all the rest of it, uh, A, that's not my area of expertise, uh, and B, it would be just too much. But uh, at some point, the idea occurred to me to ask Mike, who actually does like doing all this kind of stuff, as you've heard already, uh, to do a bonus video for the package uh, explaining exactly that. So the difference between VCA compression uh, and uh, tube compression, all the other flavors and varieties, and how those translate into the different options we have available to us as plugins. So if you guys are listening to this and thinking, well, I can hear some things that Mike's saying that I like, or some things that John's saying that I like, or some things that I'm saying that I like, uh, how am I going to choose between these different ways of working? What's the right way for me? And you want to try Home Mastering Compression, the, the video series, you're going to get both sides of the picture there, hopefully, um, and be able to make more of an informed choice. Um, so now all I have to do is actually get that out there before you've forgotten that you're interested in it. <laughs> okay, plug over. Gentlemen, is there anything on this topic that we've missed that you think we need to cover? In terms of gear for mastering, the speakers are the most important ones to get. Do you know Nothing that's else the, that goes into the rack. Yeah, the, the funny thing is all the way through that when I was saying to you guys, oh, is there a piece of gear <laughs> that you, you couldn't do without? In my head, I'm thinking the speakers and the room. But even that is preference, right? Because I've moved rooms. You could swap them out if you've got, you know, I don't know what speakers you use, but you could swap ATCs for PMCs and I'm sure you'd still be happy. You're probably right. I thought you were going to say that you could you could say, oh no, this track needs the uh, needs Genlex, whereas this one I need to listen on Tannoy's. <laughs> um, no, I mean this is the thing. I've changed rooms uh, in the past. I've changed speakers in the past. It's it's a distinctly uncomfortable thing to do uh, for me personally. Um, I think you know a huge part of our experience is based in learning what the monitoring and the monitoring environment sounds like. Um, and I'm guessing you guys would agree with that. Uh, but yeah, mm -hmm. any, any of this stuff can be changed out. But I think, okay, so maybe the thing that I would be least happy to change um, at short notice would be the speakers. I'm saying that. I don't know. All this kind of stuff. Anyway. Taking away my acoustic treatment would be a pretty bad day. Oh, yeah, that would be a nice, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, there's a, there's a kind of a minimum spec, isn't there? You, you you need a certain level of tool, and above that, you can work. Below that, you just can't. I think that's absolutely true. You could work with some pretty awful headphones as long as you spend 10 times longer listening to reference tracks. But you'd still need... Right. I mean, how, how bad headphones are you talking? <laughs> iBuds? <laughs> I don't know. Is yeah. that challenge accepted? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thanks. We were talking about um, the TC and the Fab Filter, mm -hmm. and I was thinking, does Ian Shepard have a signature sound? Um, I hope not. <laughs> I, I was going to say absolutely not, but um, I'm kind of too scientific to be that. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, well, actually, I know so because so for one of the things that I had to do for the putting this series of videos together, this new product, is is find example songs to use, which is actually really tricky when you're trying to show specific things about different aspects of compression. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I some of the songs are things that I've mastered and I just asked permission from the artist. Some of them I kind of sent messages out to my email list and got people to send me in songs and look, listen through to them to find stuff to use. But the fascinating thing is when you drop uh, four or five different songs from different albums together into the same playlist to, to kind of make a, a sort of weirdo compilation album, uh, they kind of work together but they don't really. I've still tweaked the settings. You know, mastering is all about context. Um, and I think that in itself tells me that I don't... Well, maybe I do have a, have a sound. I, you do use the same tools every time. I, in I, the same room and things like that. So, Okay, if, if I was using something like, say, an 1176 that, that really does have a character and a, and a sound to it, I would accept that those things are shaping the results that I get. But I think the tools that I use are flexible enough that that's not the case. I always try and be empathetic to to the material. I try and listen to what the artists have done and the the the, the mix engineer and people are trying to achieve and understand that and get them closer. And if that doesn't conform to my personal taste, then I will move it. I was going to say, I think I I... I personally probably do have a sound, but there's lots of material that doesn't suit that sound. So I probably move things closer towards that sound. Um, but it's not like I kind of stamp my imprint on it and you could listen and go, oh, that's Ian Shepard's master versus XYZ engineers. I don't uh-huh. think. And I think if you, like, there's a, a Spotify playlist out there and um, there's a Pinterest page somewhere with some collections of, of recent stuff that I've worked on pretty confident that if people take a listen to that they will hear a lot of things that sound really good but in completely different ways and for completely different reasons so now i'm going to do my my thing that absolutely doesn't work on radio so i'm holding my hands about two meters apart (laughs) If, if that's the total range of possible sound out there with kind of silence at one end and white noise at the other now i've brought my hands in and they're about a foot apart if that's the range of everything that's out there um, with, I don't know, reggae at one end and uh, solo ukulele at the other. <laughs> um, and then I bring my hands in even closer so they're a couple of inches apart. You know, I'm mastering stuff so that it's within that that central region. That's where my, quotes, sound is. But even within that, there's still a range, uh, you know, that comes down to taste and um, what I, genre and... You know, if I, if I have a client who wants a particular sound, I'm going to try and deliver that for them. So, did I answer the question? You said no. Moving on. <laughs> Mike, do you think you have a, a, a particular sound when you're mastering stuff? I try not to, but yes, I probably do. As you say, there's a way I like to hear music. And so, I'm going to, it's all, everything's going to move slightly towards how I like to hear it. But yeah, in the same way, I try not to. I try to give, I always try to give whatever the song is, what it needs more than what I want it to. That's the hardest thing for me is when, if there's a bit of music that I like and I really want it to sound a particular way and I just can't make it sound that way, um, that's, you know, I find that really frustrating. Um, when you can, you know, especially you can kind of get it almost there, but not quite. And the lucky thing is that nine times out of 10, our clients agree with us. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have a career. <laughs> um, but 
it is a strange thing of not having a sound but having a sound i mean do you do you think you have a sound john as a, as a as a mixing engineer and i mean i know you do some mastering as well i think for mixing i do things in a particular way or end up i i think my mixes do have similarities just because of the room and my speakers and what i like to hear um but by mix 3 to 12 of a particular song it's less my personal choices of how this the song sounds at that point but that's that's kind of a different rant yeah. <laughs> well, we all like dynamics here right yep yeah so so that there's a thing that helps define our sounds in some you know in a, in a sense ian you're never going to make a master which is squashed yeah not super squashed no so so that is that is your sound then isn't it no, I agree, Mike. And I was thinking something similar, which is, yeah, there's... Uh, every so often people send me things that have been to other mastering houses and they're not happy with the results. And usually it's because they sound thick and muddled and uh, th- and those are the words that I use, which sound slightly derogatory. But there are other people who go to those places specifically because they sound full and warm you know, which are the more positive ways of, of terming those things. So, you know, yeah, it, it all comes down to preference. I mean, I like to hear plenty of stereo separation in a mix. If, if a mix comes in where everything is just down the centre, I feel like that's, that's a missed opportunity, you know. It just, why would you not get some space in there to get some extra separation um, and clarity? There are people who don't like separation and clarity. Um, you know, there's a whole range of plugins and processes out there specifically designed to remove separation and clarity um so so yeah in that in that sense i guess i i do have a sound good thanks again gentlemen i i enjoyed that i have no idea whether anybody listening will have got anything useful from it but we can have a slightly less focused episode every once in a while um and hopefully you guys listening did um so Thanks, Mike, and thanks in advance for the video you're working on for the new product. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what you come up with. John, thanks for being here and for editing and mixing the episode, as always. Thanks to Kaylee Law for providing the music. Uh, Mike, if people want to uh, find out more about what you do, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, MikeHillier.me And Mike's on Facebook and Twitter as well, if anybody wants to connect with him there regular listeners will know they should head over to reaperblog.net to see what john is up to john have you got a new episode of your uh, video blog out yet by the time this airs i'll have five episodes excellent i've seen episode four i need to head over and watch episode five good stuff my website is productionadvice.co.uk please also head over to themasteringshow.com and sign up for the email hotlist if you'd like to get updates about new episodes as they're released please also head over to itunes and give us a rating and a review uh, and tell your friends if you like the show. Thanks for listening.